brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Damn you, when. Hello and 
Welcome to tonight's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing with all of the usual caveats, of course. Feeling a little down today. A um, little disappointed. I was supposed to uh, have Judge Janine Pirro on today. I was actually supposed to have a sit-down, pre-recorded interview Monday night. And unfortunately, we weren't able to make that happen, so I will not be able to play that interview tonight. And I was so looking forward to an opportunity to get to speak with Judge Janine. So I'm very disappointed about that. But life goes on. It's the kind of thing that happens in this uh, medium, and it happens quite quite frequently. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. I'm I'm not upset or mad at anybody. Like I said, I'm just disappointed. I am disappointed that I missed that opportunity to get to speak with her. Hopefully we can reschedule. Hopefully we'll still have that opportunity to have that conversation. But I'm also disappointed because I had been telling you guys for a while that it was going to be tonight, and you know I was excited about it, and I know some of you guys were excited about it, but hey, uh, it happened. Uh, when it comes to somebody that is an A-list level guest like Judge Janine happens to be, uh, when uh, opportunities abide for a larger platform that comes along, uh, you know that should be the priority. I mean, she's, she's doing this, um, trying to uh, go around and promote the brand new book. You know, she she doesn't need to promote herself anymore. Everyone who's a conservative in this country is aware of who she is. They know who she is, and they either love her or hate her. There are very few people in between. Uh, most conservatives love her. Uh, there may be one or two exceptions to that. I haven't met one yet, but uh, there's always that possibility, I suppose. Uh, most liberals, uh, Democrats and uh, leftists, uh, tend to dislike her because, well, she's very blunt. She's very straightforward. And, uh, of course, like I mentioned, she's promoting the book. And the brand-new book that she has out is Liars, Leakers, and Liberals, The Case Against the Trump – no, I'm sorry, The Case Against the Anti-Trump Conspiracy. Book that I've actually been reading. Haven't quite got through it just yet, but I am enjoying reading. I, unfortunately, I just don't have as much time as I would like to have in, in going through and reading. But what I love about the book so far is not only does she uh, strongly make her case, just as if rather than a judge, she was a prosecuting attorney, uh, but she still does it with the same no nonsense approach. And uh, that she brings to the television show. And, and what I really, really like is, you know, if you're familiar with her show, if you heard her talking, I mean, uh, even if you haven't had a chance to watch her show on Fox when it airs, I'm sure a lot of you have had a chance to see on YouTube or posted on social media uh, via Twitter or Facebook, uh, where people will show clips of her opening statements or her closing thoughts or wh whatever it may be. And if you're familiar with her cadence, when you read this, or at least uh, when I'm reading it, I hear the cadence in my head. But you know that's uh, <laughs> that's just me. I, like I said, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I highly recommend it. It's a great read so far, and uh, I know that I'm definitely, definitely going to be finishing this book, and will probably read it more than once. Like I said, hopefully we'll be able to get uh, Judge Janine on here at some point in the very near future. Uh, da, 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 da. A quick check into the chat room, and uh, let me welcome Chief from Simple Facts of Life, and let me welcome Mary both to the broadcast. Thanks, guys, for being here. Uh, Chief was actually in the chat room before things got started. 
And uh, I definitely appreciate that. Always great to have you guys here. And Mary's talking about how she was supposed to be on Ken's show uh, this coming Monday. So, yeah, I definitely hope she shows. And again, Stan, I think sometimes it's a matter of timing. Uh, when I'm trying to have her on, we were scheduled one time to have a live uh, one-on-one early. And uh, okay, I didn't have sound yet. Were you saying that she didn't show on Annie's show? No, 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 she didn't show on mine. I think she did show on Annie's show. I, I haven't had a chance to go back and listen yet. I, I tried listening live at uh, the day job, and then I wasn't able to stay at my desk to find out. Uh, <laughs> And I've been trying to make time uh, since then, and I even tried listening earlier, and I was having some issues with my freaking speakers here. <laughs> so I wasn't able to listen to anything before the show while I was doing prep and getting ready here. But I'm pretty sure she did show for Andy's show. And again, I think it's the time. I think it's the time. If it's later, she gets more opportunities for television, and I think she'll take those television opportunities ahead of uh, or radio spots. And then it goes back to those platforms where you have a chance to reach a larger audience, although uh, Ken has a huge audience. He's running his own network over there. He's doing a great job. She would be very remiss to to not make that appointment. But you know, again, the way I feel about it is if things happen to where she can't, uh, if something else popped up, she had a, a larger platform. I would rather her go do that and then reschedule with me later anyway. <laughs> of course, Mary says that, uh, of course, she's on at 9. And you're right, I, those later time slots are a little more appealing to have on television, but there's still only so many television spots you can grab here and there. And that's just a, a primetime shows right now on Fox. Uh, she's going to pop on those quite frequently. And with so much going on that relates directly, uh, even going back to uh, her incident at The View, so much going on. I know she uh, – uh, an event that really surprised me, she missed when she was supposed to be on Don Smith's show. Don's one of these guys. He was like going to be one of the first folks in this little circle that I know of that was actually scheduled to have her on. And because of his uh, publicist company that he operates, well, publicity company that you know. Uh, I'm really surprised that uh, she wasn't able to make that. But again, you know, busy lady, writing a book, has her own show. What are you going to do? <laughs> Time to help the little people. She's on TV enough. Well, I like how you think, Mary, but at the same time, she's trying to sell this book. And I, again, I have no hard feelings. That she missed. My only problem is I haven't been able to get in touch with the publicist that I work through. Uh, yet in order to try and reschedule some point down the road because I mean I know at some point uh, after the immediate uh, push on this book dies down a little bit, she's going to have more time. There's going to be fewer things to do. But what can you do? I mean it's not like she's going to be able to come on on Sundays because you know she's got her own show that she's got to get ready. Of course her show's on Saturdays over on Fox, but. You know, every other time, you know, I'm sure that's her one time that she's really taking a day off, uh, like a lot of folks in this business do. So at any rate, uh, what I'm still trying to get to is I, you know, I, I'm sad and <laughs> disappointed that I'm not going to bring you the interview that I've been talking about for weeks now. But I, I'm just hopeful that we can reschedule and make things happen. But I still highly recommend the book if you haven't gotten a copy, Liars, Leakers, and Liberals. The case against the anti-Trump conspiracy. 
great read. And if you are a fan of Judge Janine, you're going to love reading this because, like I said, you can almost hear the cadence when you're reading it. It's, it's fantastic so far. Uh, outside of that, it's also been kind of a rainy, dreary day here in East Tennessee. I uh, hope the weather is better. Uh, if you happen to be listening at KYAH out at uh, Utah's Talk Authority, 5.40 a.m., I hope it's uh, been a better day there. Obviously, it's early morning for you guys here on Saturday, so I hope you guys are having a great weekend so far and that uh, you're getting the beginnings of a great weekend. KYAH, 540 AM. Love you guys. Thanks for joining me as I bring a little East Tennessee flavor to Utah's Talk Authority. And don't forget, I'll be on again tomorrow morning for you guys a little later, 10 to noon. So uh, listen in then as well. Meanwhile, as much as I'm whining... I guess I kind of am, although I don't really mean to. Uh, I will be joined here at the bottom of the first hour by Dr. Jason Hill. He happens to be a professor of philosophy at uh, DePaul University. He is the president and CEO of the Institute for Immigrant Assimilation, and he is the author of four books, the newest of which is titled We Have Overcome, an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. So we'll be talking a little bit about the book and a little bit about his journey uh, from becoming an immigrant himself to becoming an American citizen and why immigrants should love America, which in my mind also means should take the time to come here legally, should take the time to do things the right way. And I'm guessing, based on everything I've seen and read about uh, Dr. Hill, that he feels pretty much the same way. So we'll find out about that later. In the meanwhile, let's go ahead and uh, get into some of these stories or else. The, just the stories I've mentioned in the show description, I won't get to if I don't. Uh, so hopefully I can sneak at least two of these in before Dr. Hill will be calling, and hopefully Dr. Hill will remember. He's supposed to call me, <laughs> and I always get nervous when uh, they have the call-in number, and I don't have a way to reach back out to them. I have an email address for his publicist. <laughs> That's what I've got. And emails after hours don't often get uh, <laughs> the same attention as they do during the regular business hours. So, you know, if you guys want me to want me to have more success with getting this guest on, I recommend uh, sliding over, making some contributions, and helping me out so I can get the show moved more uptown. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then I can do these daytime hours that these guests are, are easier uh, to deal with. And in the meanwhile, uh, obviously I'm being facetious. Uh, I like what I do during the day. I like what I'm doing here as well, and I love you guys. But let's get on with the show. Uh, guess what? Everybody at this point knows that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or as we like to call her here, the notorious RBG. Okay, well, that's the first time I've called her that, but I, I saw it somewhere, and I thought it was cute. So anyway… Uh, as we all know, she is kind of getting up there, and I think a lot of us believe that she is probably not going to be on the court for very much longer. However, the 85-year-old has now suggested that she's intending on staying on the court at least until she's 90, believing that since she's recently seen others uh, wait till they were 90 before they retired, uh, thinking that that's going to be long enough because she's very optimistic about the future, particularly in 2020. She believes, as do a lot of leftists, 
she honestly believes that the Democrats are going to retake the White House, and at that point, she'll feel more comfortable in her retirement. That she can step away. Regardless of what her health is, that's her intention. She plans on defying God himself if he calls her <laughs> to leave this life and say, nope, I can't do it, not till Donald Trump's not president anymore. I think she's overly optimistic about 2020, but you know that's where the Democrats are. Now, all of that's not all that surprising. Uh, early in Donald Trump's presidency uh, – when it first became clear that Donald Trump would be selecting most likely at least two, possibly as many as four Supreme Court nominees if he was to have two terms, the left started losing their minds about what that could do to the complexion of the court. Even though the majority of people on Donald Trump's list that he laid Hey, Mel. Bry here. Got to work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy. Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey, popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. out ...during the campaign process is made up of primarily originalists, which obviously that's pretty dangerous if you're a leftist and want to push a leftist agenda. They they just they started losing their minds about the prospect. Oh, if we were to have as many as seven to two, what on earth? What on earth would we do? How could we uh, approach that? What would be the be? How do we survive? Well, obviously your policies don't. We get a return back to. The republic our founders and framers attempted to give to us in the first place. But despite the optimism from Justice Ginsburg, there appears to be several leftists who aren't quite as optimistic about her ability to just simply remain healthy despite her, her tremendous workout uh, regiment. In fact, that's what I was going to do. What well, during the early panic, they talked about how Ruth she is incredibly fit. In fact, one reporter tried to do the the workout with her and just wore him out, and she was still fresh. And she's notorious for, for her tennis uh, playing ability at this point. Which you know, hey, good for her. <laughs> the left has used the court for the last time. Uh, I like that, Mary. But uh, the, the, the fun part comes from the fact that the, they just got all up in their heads, and then they took to Twitter here recently despite this brand-new assertion that her health is there. And her making the statement, I'm going to stay until I'm at least 90, uh, and you know, here's hoping she's healthy enough too because I don't, I don't like her politics. I don't like her policy. I don't like how she tries to roll from the bench, but surprise to any leftist listening, like a lot of conservatives, we don't. 
really wish ill upon anyone. We just want our republic the way it was built. We want our republic to work the way it was intended. I think it's probably an even better way to put it because I know a lot of you younger folks in particular have been mis led into believing that the nation was built on slavery and that this talk about liberty was just tripe and it was only intended for rich white men. No, no, no. Get back to source documents. Get back to original documents. Read what they had to say. There was legitimately an effort afoot from the beginning to try to end slavery. From the very beginning, and the only reason they didn't push that hard is because they were afraid it would fracture this young nation to the point that we would simply be overrun by either the British who would have still loved to have marched right back in here and tried a couple of times or even possibly the opportunistic French who were our allies but certainly uh, – our allies against the British during the Civil War – but certainly would not have minded an opportunity to come in and swoop up southern states, and I don't think they were that interested in the northern states per se, but their influence in Canada, I'm sure well, they would have loved to have had it surrounded and eventually would have engulfed had they had the opportunity. All this diversing back, you know, just, just stop believing for a second all the hype you've been fed. Go back to source documents and read them. They're written in plain language. Now, the English is perhaps a bit more formal than you're accustomed to, but it's still plain. It's straightforward. It does not require interpretation as the Constitution itself does not require interpretation, no matter what any constitutional studies attorney will tell you. The, the, the meat and potatoes here still comes back to this. What is outstandingly funny and perhaps even ridiculous is the fact that uh, they took to Twitter and folks were offering up internal organs. <laughs> there were literally folks that were tweeting that they would gladly give up internal organs to Ruth Bader Ginsburg in order to help keep her on the court if it became necessary. Uh, whether I'm uh, dead or even if I'm still alive, if she needed it, if that's what it takes to protect this country, that's what I'm willing to do. Now, a lot of that's hyperbole, and some of it was probably folks even just kind of joking. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it, <laughs> and probably wouldn't. My general reaction to that, however, is this. If you really, really mean it and you're prepared to offer up that kind of help if she gets to a point where in order to maintain her life that uh, you're willing to do that – then good for you. Seriously, I mean that's not a sacrifice a lot of us would be willing to make, especially if we're alive and it's uh, – you know, there are times when we're looking at uh, – we have close family members, and they need a close match, uh, and we still are like, mm, I don't know. It's kind of dangerous, and what happens if the one I'm left with dies uh, and conks out or something? If you're talking about a kidney or a lung or something that you're fortunate enough to have two of and can live with just one. But uh, if you don't mean it, and even just saying it right now when it's clearly not necessary, well, really, it's just kind of dumb. Sorry. All right, uh, here's something else, and I will probably – I will probably get started with this and then come back to it. I don't think I'll be able to finish it before Dr. Hill is supposed to join me, but I got to get started or we never will. 
everybody's favorite democratic socialist, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She, of course, is running for Congress in New York. Everybody knows that. But in case you haven't heard, she's actually going to be involved in some fundraising activities starting tomorrow, actually, Thursday of this week. That would be August the 2nd. She's going to be doing fundraising in Los Angeles, you know, all the way out on the other coast, out in California. And uh, the purpose of the fundraising isn't necessarily to help her campaign. But it's an effort to help the coast-to-coast revolution, which is actually the very first fundraising event she's supposed to be attending is a luncheon that is titled Coast-to-Coast Revolution. And the idea here is that, at least according to the planners, Ocasio-Cortez will be explaining, and I quote, the blueprint she is creating for winning against corporate Democrats. Corporate Democrats, you know, like self-proclaimed capitalist Hillary Clinton, still in the most recent polls comes in at number two for choices for uh, presidential candidates for the Democratic Party. Come on, guys. There's a lot of time between now and the next presidential election cycle, and I hope you can get it sorted. And I do hope – I really do hope that the the Democratic Party – I see no signs of it, but I hope the Democratic Party as a whole will make a return to honest-to-goodness patriotism and honest-to-goodness movement towards common sense. I know, I know, common sense so rare. It's practically a superpower. It's become a bit of an oxymoron in our modern life, but I do hope to see that because I would love to see a return of the days when the Democratic Party still was at the very least… Horribly misguided on certain issues and just had a disagreement with most conservatives in regards to what the role of government should be when it comes to, in quotes, helping people. Because the helping people has been the battle cry for a long time. I don't think it's been the intention for quite a while. But there was a time where I do honestly believe the party really did with – well, let me rephrase. The party was made up of people who really did buy into the propaganda, really did believe that the whole purpose was to go help people. I have no doubt about that. I know a lot of people who vote Democrat right here in my own community. They're good people, good-hearted people, and I don't understand the disconnect, and I'll point stuff out to me, and I will get told back a lot of the talking points from the party or from, of course… The mainstream media. But regardless of all that, it still comes down to this. The Democratic Party has for some time now at the national level been moving further and further to a socialist agenda. And at the rise of Barack Hussein al-Akbar Obama, we saw a new level of Bold and brazen moves. They thought they were at the the tipping point. They thought they were past the tipping point. They literally thought there was no coming back. Barack Obama was perfectly content to ride off into the sunset, believing that he had taken the nation to the point that that, uh, a Republican would never be elected uh, president again, 
and that it was only a matter of time before the House and the Senate were firmly in their hands, and eventually there would only be the American Communist Party. I believe that. I firmly believe that they believe that. I mean, we've seen the reaction. We heard during the entirety of the election process that brought us Donald J. Trump, especially after the primaries, about how it's un-American to challenge or even question how our choices are made. But at the same time, we continue to see exactly that after Donald Trump won. We know they stacked the deck. We know they spied on the Trump campaign. We know they keep trying to even now force this narrative of Russian collusion that technically isn't even a crime and still isn't provable. And the only thing that has been demonstrated is that the Russians bought some ads on social media. They literally didn't interfere in our election any more than what opposition ads would have done anyway. DNC commercials did the same thing just against the DNC. All right, so uh, stay with me just a moment longer. I'm going to take a little break right here, play a little Matt Fitzgibbons for you while you're waiting. Please check out PatriotMusic.com uh, when you get the opportunity, and uh, when I get back, I fully expect that we will be joined by Dr. Jason D. Hill. Stay with me. We will be right back. Smell the dust, feel the sun, fingers twitch just above the gun. Hear the wind cross the plain, there is no fear that I must contain, and I'm in the eye of the hurricane. I see the sweat across his brow I'm poised to draw in eternal now The fastest one is the one who's slain I still stand, got the better aim And I'm in the eye of the hurricane All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was he's a great musician, and he's a very good friend of the show. So again, please check out PatriotMusic.com when you get a chance. And right now, it is my tremendous honor to welcome to the show for the first time. He is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University. He is the president and CEO of the Institute for Immigrant Assimilation. He's the author of four books, the newest of which is titled We Have Overcome, an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. Please uh, help me in welcoming Dr. Jason D. Hill. Uh, Dr. Hill, uh, Jason, welcome to the show, and thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Well, you know, I, I have to admit, I was uh, 
I was intrigued by uh, the book and uh, taking a look at it. I, I've been able to do a cursory exam of it. I haven't been able to really uh, fully read it yet, but I, I do find the things interesting. And, of course, in a time where there's so much debate and discussion about what immigration really is, uh, you know, yeah. immigration is a legal process, and, you know, there's a way to do it that's the right way, and it's disrespectful, I think, in the eyes of the folks who do it the right way. Uh, when you don't, in uh, America is divided in such a fashion. I love to see folks who are willing to take a stand to say, hey, this is it, and we love America enough that we wanted to do this. So tell the, the listeners a little bit about your background. What brought you to the States, and what is your path to your version of the American dream? Well, I came to America as a legal immigrant at the age of 20, and I had always been in love with America as a child. My greatest dream was to come to this, this great republic, which I, at the age of about 14, I thought was the greatest country on earth, the most moral country on earth. And my, my grandmother, who, was mar- who was, uh, became an American citizen because her brother was married to an American citizen, and he sponsored her. And she then subsequently sponsored my mom, and we got our green cards the legal way under the Reagan administration. And had- With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To show financial affidavits of support, my mom had to get a job on getting her green card before she could come to the country. Uh, it was a very thorough vetting process to become a legal immigrant, and we got our green cards. And I came here at 20 years old with $120 in my pocket with a green card and landed in Atlanta and thought I was coming to and still think of America as the greatest country on earth, the most moral country on earth, and wanted to be here and um, came to Atlanta and um, came really to be a novelist and a poet. Didn't really think I'd end up being a a college professor and the author of so many books. And... um, and uh, did a PhD, did a, a, an undergraduate degree in philosophy and, and, and literature, and, um, and um, lived, in, lived in Stone Mountain, Georgia for a while. And um, then um, went to, P, to Purdue to do my PhD in philosophy and um, continued to fall in love with this country and just saw the magnificence of the American people you know, and um, saw their benevolence, their warmth, their openness to immigrants who worked really, really hard. I had to work up to 45 hours a week to put myself through school as an undergraduate. 
and went to school full-time, graduated magna cum laude at the top of my class, and won a scholarship to do my PhD, and then subsequently became a professor. Well, uh, what was it that uh, drew you to philosophy in particular? Because, I mean, obviously that's something that's not for everyone. Uh, it requires a, a unique level of dedication uh, that I don't think people really appreciate unless they've studied it. A lot of people think it's an easy path until they actually take it. What was what was the thing that drew you to that and led you to decide you wanted to get the PhD there? Well, you know, I I I, I can't. I have to tell you, I came from a family of communists and socialists, and my grandfather was, should have been the first prime minister of Jamaica. And he he uh, my father was a socialist. My my grandmother was a socialist, and I I read. On my own, um, free market uh, philosophers like Ayn Rand and Ludwig von Mises and Hayek, and I discovered these these free market thinkers on my own. And on discovering these thinkers, I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I was never tempted by socialism as a child. As much as I loved my family, my grandfather was a revered figure in my life. I loved my grandfather. I worshipped my father who was a, a, a rabid socialist and was trying to always convince me into socialism. From as far back as 12 years old, I saw socialism destroying my country. Uh, it ruined Jamaica, where, which is where I'm from. And I was never tempted by it. And I, I discovered Ayn Rand and, uh, and, and other free market thinkers and decided that philosophy, uh, which, which, I, which I thought of as, as the pursuit of truth, and knowledge. I always wanted to discover what the truth was. And my growing fealty to reason, to rationality, logic. I thought logic and reason were the best paths to pursuing truth. And, um, and so I, I rejected socialism and communism and, and thought that America was the best place as a milieu in which capitalism and free market uh, the free market system uh, would be a place for an immigrant such as myself, and philosophy, uh, which which has turned out to be the exact opposite. I mean, I, I, philosophy is a hotbed of leftist, socialist, communist. I mean, I work in a field where yeah, I'm probably the only free enterprise, capitalist, um, pro-capitalist person. So, you know, I, I became radically disappointed late, years later. But that was my initial pursuit of philosophy. It was a love of reason. A love of of wisdom, a desire to pursue truth, and and falling in love with with free market uh, free market thinkers um, who espoused ideas of liberty. Falling in love also with the founding fathers. I had studied the founding fathers and the Constitution quite early on in my uh, education in Jamaica, because in Jamaica you start high school when you're about ten years old or eleven years old. It's not, it's was a British colony, so my education was very, very English. I went to a British school and um, and studied American history from about the age of 11 to around 13. So I studied the political philosophy of the founding fathers and fell in love with, with the Constitution of America very, very early on and thought, oh, this is the philosophy I need to be studying. I need to be a philosopher in order to espouse um, ideas um, and I was, you know, I, I, I worked as a journalist also in Jamaica. 
So those are some of the, the motivating factors that led me to study philosophy. Um, I must say the founding fathers and the, the wonderful constitution of this country um, were catalysts that, uh, that sort of motivated my, my, my pursuit of philosophy. It is funny how uh, those uh, gentlemen from so long ago still have such a profound influence on uh, the future and how uh, this nation proceeds and how liberty can be uh, spread throughout uh, the whole world if it's allowed to. Uh, You kind of touched on it a second ago, but I I was going to ask even if you hadn't – Academia is not exactly known as a hotbed for conservative thought or, unfortunately, even in some areas, uh, not even liking America very much. Uh, Do you spend a lot of time in – you know, obviously not uh, hot conflict, I would say, but do you spend a lot of time dealing with uh, levels of hostility from some of your your, uh, colleagues? I don't engage them at all. These are adults who are ensconced in their own cultural Marxism. They're not open to reason uh, in one respect, that they are ideologues. So what I do, I'm a very old-fashioned scholar. That is, I teach ideas from a dispassionate point of view. I'm a scholar, and when I teach, you know, whether it's Aristotle or Plato or John Locke or... um, Thomas Hobbes, I also teach, make sure that they get a very fair and balanced education. So I make sure that they get pro-American conservative values, that they are taught the philosophy of the founding fathers, that they are taught John Locke, that is the thinkers who influence the founding fathers, that they're taught some uh, von Mises and Hayek, that they're also taught the morality of wealth creation that America was predicated not necessarily on equality of income, but equality of equality before the law. That is, I teach them Americanism. And uh, I don't really combat with my colleagues because um, my job as a public intellectual and my job as a teacher is to um, disseminate ideas in a very fair and balanced way. So I think my colleagues are... Um, in a fantasy world of their own where they disparage capitalism, they disparage the free market, but they're living off the largesse of these corporations who fund their, their, their salaries and their, and their grants. I think they're moral hypocrites. I don't necessarily have to point it out to them, um, but you know, contesting them is useless because they're not open to persuasion um, I do this through my writing, and this is one of the reasons I decided to write this book, We Have Overcome, which is a love letter, because I had just grown sick and tired of seeing the anti-Americanism, the hatred of America that is part of the academic identity, part of the identity of academics. I cannot emphasize to your listeners how much the professoriate, the professors, really hate America. They're so anti-America. And they're ideologues, and they spew these invectives against America towards their students. And I had written, you know, three books before in philosophy, in uh, politics and ethics, and I decided I'm going to write a love letter to the American people to show gratitude, to show how wonderful they are, to show how exceptional this country is. I'm going to define in my book 
the moral meaning of America, why America is the greatest country on earth, why it's the most benevolent and moral country, and why her people are the greatest treasure troves of the world. And that's what my book really is about. It's a love letter to the American people, explaining to them why this country and her people are the greatest benefactors, the greatest assets, an unprecedented phenomenon that the world has never seen before. And I've seen the other side because I have lived in Europe. I took some time to, to, to live in Europe. I have traveled to over 75 countries giving talks on, on my books. I've been fortunate to travel throughout the world. And there is no other place that I, as a black Caribbean man, as an immigrant, would rather live than in America. And so I decided to write this book to let the American people know that they have been disparaged. They have been called crass and vulgar. Their amazing country has been, especially in the last two years, um, has been uh, demonized. And someone has to really celebrate the American dream and celebrate the American people and celebrate America. America is a great country. And it's becoming greater and greater. I don't see this country in decline. I see us becoming greater every single day. And I see her people becoming greater and more charitable and more hospitable every single day. And so I decided to write this book. Well, uh, a little more on the immigrant side of things. Um, you have, like you said, you've expressed the fact that you wanted to come here at a very early age, that you've seen the other side of of what socialism and communism does. What would you describe your personal immigrant experience coming to America? And are you in touch with other immigrants that have had a similar experience? Absolutely. Part of the book um, is not just a theoretical, you know, me going off on why America is great. A large part of the book tells the stories of immigrants such as myself a Vietnamese who came here who couldn't speak a word of English with whom I stuffed envelopes in a bank, a Dalit from India, an untouchable who came here who couldn't speak a word of English, who's no one, who became an architect. This Vietnamese man became, an, became a, a, an owner of three restaurants. I tell the story of untold number of immigrants who came to America, immigrants such as myself who came with very little money, all legal immigrants, none of them were illegal immigrants. They all came on either with green cards or with student visas. And they came to America and they did not see a country that was imperialistic, uh, lined, you know, didn't see a, a bigoted country that was intrinsically racist and unjust. They saw a country that had an ugly past. America's had its, its past with racism. We, we have to admit that. It was born with a birth defect called slavery. It had Jim Crow and segregation. It's had an ugly past, but it's a progressive country in that it's always tried to correct its flaws. And the civil rights movement and various movements have tried to remedy, remedy those injustices towards minorities. And they didn't see intrinsic bigotry. And the immigrants that I have met from Africa, from Central America, from the Caribbean saw capitalism and saw America as a place lined with gold and took a little piece of that gold and made something substantial and remarkable of their lives, some in small doses and some in 
in magnificent ways. And so I tell the stories of these immigrants also in the book who are celebrants of the American dream, who embody the American dream, and they prove that this country is great because they came here with very, very little. I, I especially did not tell the stories of immigrants who came here with wealth or with a lot of education. I tell the stories of immigrants who came here with very, very little. A girl from Guatemala who came from a working class background legally, could barely speak the language, learned the language by watching a lot of television, and went on to become an, an uh, anesthesiologist in one of the top hospitals in the South. You know, these are success stories that, is only made pop, that are only made possible because America works. It works. It works when you have grit, tenacity, resilience, when you do not have an entitlement mentality. This country owes you nothing. Immigration is a privilege. It's not a right. And when you come with the attitude that the country only owes you a chance to make something of your life, it doesn't guarantee you an outcome of success. It just, guarantee, it just promises you endless possibilities that you can take advantage of. Well, I, I can't uh, imagine a better way of putting that. But, you know, I do think uh, a lot of citizens tend to take for granted what we have here. And I do think yes. sometimes it takes uh, that outsider perspective looking at, uh, for example, what we consider to be the poverty line in this country is so much wealthier than you see in 80% of the world. And we, right. we lots of. We, we, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't understand how good we have it. We like, like, uh, unfortunately, you get complacent. You like to whine about things. because Oh, woe is me. Everything's so bad. But then you turn around and hear stories like what you're talking about and like what you express in this book. And it should bring a new perspective, but fortunately I'm afraid that we're so divided politically that it's going to be hard to get that message across to some folks. But uh, if you were going to offer up some advice to someone who's looking to become an immigrant, looking to make their way into the United States, what would mm -hmm. your advice to them be? Yeah, what would your advice uh, to them be? I would say, first of all, do not ever buy into the victimology mentality. You know, we have a far-left Democratic Party that loves victims. 
It loves victims, and it loves to feed you a diet of victimology. You are not a, once you enter this country, you are not a victim. You might have been a victim in your country where you come from, a victim of you know, all kinds of oppression. America is an emancipatory country. You are, once you set foot on these shores, you have been liberated from your victimology, your victim status. So get rid of that vic- B. Do not come with a sense of entitlement. Americans are not a xenophobic people, but I will tell you one thing after living in this country for 32, in this great country for 32 years, Americans do not like people with an entitlement attitude. Americans respect you if you work hard, if you pull yourself up from your bootstraps, if you pay as you go, Americans respect that. So do not come with an entitlement attitude. The third thing I would say is learn to assimilate. And assimilate does not mean that you give up your language. Nobody's asking you to stop speaking Spanish or French or German or Chinese or whatever language that you speak. But you have to learn to assimilate to certain core American values and norms that tie us all as citizens of this wonderful republic. Whether you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're an atheist, you worship a Christmas tree, there are a set of core American values around which you pledge allegiance to. And you have to learn to assimilate to a set of American norms. And I would say the other thing I would say to immigrants who are coming to this country is that you have got to be prepared to fail. And there is no other country on the face of the earth in where it is better to fail than America. And why? Because America is the one country where when you fail, she gives you numerous attempts to reinvent, to regenerate, to recoup from those failures. So don't be afraid of failure. You know, failure in America is only an opportunity to learn from those mistakes, to pick yourself up and to start over again. And um, I, as an immigrant, I have to say, you know, there are many times I have, I haven't accomplished certain goals that I set myself for. I've accomplished most, almost all of my goals, but they're, they're, I had a terrible struggle in this country when I first came here. Um, There were times when I had to drop out of college for a semester because I just didn't have the money to pay my school fees. I still managed to graduate in three, in four years because I worked really, really, really hard. But uh, I felt like a failure when I had to drop out for a semester because I I literally did not have the money to pay my school fees. And I had to go work a fourth job at Macy's as a cashier (laughs) <laughs> and not take a vacation for a whole year. And uh, this is, your, I would say to these immigrants, your life is your, your fate. It's not anybody else's responsibility. This is not a welfare state, but, or it shouldn't be a welfare state. Your life is your responsibility, not the responsibility of the state. Your procreational choices are yours and not your neighbor's. And you must live responsibly and you must live within your own income, within the means of your own income. And I think if you follow those principles and you have a goal and you set yourself and you're disciplined and you have grit, tenacity, resilience, perseverance, and you have an ethos that is set towards success, 
um, you'll make it in America. You will eventually make it. Maybe not in a year, three years, who knows, but you will eventually make it. All right. Obviously, you would like for as many people as possible to read the book, but is there any particular group uh, that you would really, really hope reads this, gets the message, uh, any particular subsection of America or of some other part of the world that may be looking at uh, immigration, any particular target that you would prefer above all else that at least they read? Well, I think my conservative readers – I think conservative readers will, will read the book, and I, I would like them to read the book to be inoculated, as I said, against the Americophobia that is afflicting them because I think conservatives – a lot of conservative readers have been made to feel ashamed of their country. So aside from, aside from conservative readers, I would really like aspiring immigrants and those whom I call dissenting liberals, right? Those – there are – there are liberals who um, are questioning the extent to which the values that they adhere to are making them ashamed of being patriots. There's nothing wrong with being a great patriot of this country. So I think immigrants who are coming to this country, aspiring immigrants, I would love them to read this book, aside from my conservative readers, and dissenting liberals or liberals who love this country. But I, I, I can't tell you, Tim, how many liberals I've met in the academy who have said to me, I would love to, to, to wear a flag on my lapel or put a flag up in front of my house, but I feel so embarrassed. I want to reach those people also, that you can be proud of this country. You can be a great patriot of this country. And not feel ashamed. So those are the people I'd like to reach, really. All right. Um, just uh, real quick, uh, Mary Brockman in the chat room uh, just said that I wish everybody uh, thought like him. Uh, I think uh, the key <laughs> is thinking, because obviously that's, as a philosopher, one thing you spend a lot of time doing. It would be nice if a lot of people put more thought into it. Um, is there any remaining major point uh, theme from the book that you'd like to uh, express to the listeners uh, that we haven't covered? Well, you know, we live, Tim, in times of of, 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 of um, how can I put it? We live in a time where it's become uh, fashionable to spit on this great country. And I, I think we're in the midst of a cultural civil war. And this is not something I covered in the book because I wanted the book to be a very positive, optimistic, gung-ho book. But I would say that something that's not covered in the book, but I, but I would want to sort of emphasize to your readers is never be an apologist for American greatness. This country has earned its right to be announced itself as a great country. It has been a beacon of light. It's not a culture. America is not a culture. It's a civilization. That's one thing I want to stress also. I hate when people talk about American culture. We're not a culture. We are a civilization. And we have, been a, we have earned the right to be a civilization. And we should stop apologizing for our exceptionalism or greatness. We have been the benefactors of millions of people around the world. 
we have alleviated poverty to many, many countries and people. And I didn't stress this too much in the book because I didn't want the book to be that divisive. But I would say this to, 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 your, to, to, your, to your listeners, that go out and be proud to be an American, not in the sort of mindless flag-waving, you know, gung-ho, I'm an American because I'm American, but because, you know, rationally that America has brought liberty and freedom and hope and aspiration to so many people around the world. And that is a wonderful thing. That is a great thing. America is the last, in many, many people's minds, it's the last beacon of hope that is left in many people's minds. And it still remains that way. Well, I got to tell you, it, uh, it makes me feel very proud to get the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you and knowing that you have this uh, deep, devoted, passionate love for this nation. I always enjoy speaking with patriots. And, sir, you clearly are one, and uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, real quick, before we let you go, obviously I want to give you an opportunity to share uh, with all the listeners where they can find your work. If you invite people to follow you on social media, you're free to share that as well. And anything that you want to uh, tell the listeners about the Institute for Immigrant Assimilation, feel free to throw all of that out. Well, we, uh, your listeners can follow me on Twitter at, um, at JasonDHill6. I'm on Twitter. I have a building up a big Twitter follower. And they, uh, they can get the book at uh, – the, the book is in its second printing. It's been so successful that, um, <laughs> that um, my, the publishers are just going into second printing. So it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the bookstore. Uh, if you order it on Amazon, you might have to wait a, just a couple of days to get it. But, but place your orders. You'll get the book. Um, and the Institute for, in- for Immigrant Assimilation is, uh, is up and running. Um, we're, we're, we're just waiting for the, for the IRS to give us that final imprimatur, that final stamp of approval. But it's going to be an institute that's going to be expressing pro-American values, capitalism, teaching immigrants how to assimilate to this great republic, uh, to this great nation, what Americanism stands for what capitalism really means, what the founding fathers really meant and envisioned for this country. And um, they'll be seeing more of that in the next couple of months as we start advertising the Institute. All right, Dr. Hill, uh, Jason, uh, thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, We have overcome an immigrant's letter to the American people. Uh, Check it out. Uh, Follow the good doctor on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, wish him luck as he continues being a professor at DePaul. As much as the other professors are probably not particularly supportive, I would imagine that's a job in and of itself that's getting more and more <laughs> difficult here. Uh, up the good work, sir. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All Bye-bye. right, that was. Uh, uh, thank you. Bye bye. Good bless, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Doctor Jason D. Hill. Uh, what can you say? I mean, uh, like I I said earlier, there are times when it is good to hear an outsider's perspective that you're not going to hear from the mainstream media because they're only going to put the folks that are trying to show up for free stuff, right? The folks that are trying to make Donald Trump like uh, uh, the uh, seal-skin boot-wearing kicker of puppies, eater of babies – this guy loves America. He came from Jamaica. He's seen the other side. 
uh, of communism and socialism and seeing how that affects a nation and and very positive message. It's hard not to feel good and feel proud of America after talking uh, with somebody like that. All right, so uh, I guess that means that it is now time, if you will allow me the short uh, break, to play the Edwards Notebook and the uh, Songs and Stories for Soldiers uh, Veterans Tip of the Day. And then after that, we will get back to uh, the other sh- uh, news stories that I want to make sure that I get covered today. Uh, thanks for being here, everybody. Stay with me. I will be right back. I know God created all men equal, but some individuals make you wonder if all they do is sit on their brains. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. Recently, former New England Patriots tight end Martellus Bennett accused President Trump of attacking black culture. As an American who happens to be black, I always thought that all who are born in this republic are Americans, with different approaches maybe, but still Americans. I'm really trying to figure out exactly what black culture Martellus Bennett is referring to, because the only thing he could enumerate in regards to his interpretation of black culture is NFL players kneeling during the national anthem, which didn't sit too well with most Americans and President Trump, who simply wanted to enjoy football games without watching highly paid football players grumble about how hard it is to be in old racist America. So is Bennett calling kneeling at football games black culture? Or is hating this country, no matter how blessed one is, black culture? Is supporting open borders and illegal border crossers black culture? I just want to know. In the meantime, I'll continue doing my part to make our American culture great again. I'm Ron Edwards. Join me Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on AmericaMatters.us, SHR Media, and Sunday midnights on Talk America Radio. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Dan Perkins here with your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day. First of all, I want to thank you for your service to our country. You were getting ready for your 4th of July barbecue, but you noticed how worn out your old grill was. You made it through, but what next? Before you buy that next... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Grill. Make sure you're getting a veteran's discount when you buy that grill or anything from a hardware store. I'm a veteran and I found out that one of my favorite places to shop has a veteran's discount. Lowe's has made it simple and easy to enroll. Just go to the customer service department and tell them you want to apply for a veteran's discount. So here is your veteran's tip of the day. Go shopping and if you see something you like, ask the owner if they have a veteran's discount. Then check out the selection of grills at Lowe's 
and be sure to enroll for the 10% discount, not only on that grill, but everything else you buy. This has been Dan Perkins with your Songs and Stories for Soldiers, Veterans Tip of the Day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am back. Thanks for staying with me through that break. Obviously, uh, Ron Edwards uh, uh, was bringing us his notebook. His commentary can be heard all across the country on both AM and FM stations alike on terrestrial radio and all the other locations that he mentioned, as well as his uh, hour-long program, the Ron Edwards Experience, every Friday. Uh, Certainly worth giving it a listen. And, of course, Dan Perkins there with the Songs and Stories uh, for Soldiers Veterans Tip of the Day, which actually he only does one every month. So I think that's a bit of a misnomer. But I love Dan, so I'll forgive him. Uh, Obviously, he's a good friend of the show, as well as all the other things he does. So definitely check out both those guys whenever you get a chance, and it's certainly be worth your while. Uh, Obviously, a lot of you folks already do. Uh, Looking back in the chat room real quick, I see we have been joined by New Orleans Wake Up and by Gary Comforter, uh, one of our Canadian friends. So, uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Glad to have you with us. You just missed a a really good interview, uh, I think. Uh, Unfortunately, had I known (laughs) that uh, my Monday night uh, pre-record was not going to happen – I would have went ahead and scheduled them for uh, the uh, top of the hour so more people could have been here because I know a lot of people check in here after they're done listening to some other shows. But uh, it will be well worth it to go back in the archives if you want to hear uh, a uh, an immigrant from Jamaica who loves America. really one of the individuals that uh, personifies uh, the American dream and uh, just – a great story he has for himself, and uh, you know he shares some other stories in the book. Uh, so by all means, if you get an opportunity, again, uh, if you're here or if you uh, track down the show here uh, at the BTR uh, platform, no matter where you were listening originally, uh, you can track me down at the BTR platform, and there is a link to the book on Amazon in the show description, so you can check that out. We have overcome an immigrant's letter to the American people, literally a love letter to America. And like I said earlier, I really, really love getting the perspective of someone from outside of the country. It's part of the reason why I'm so fond of Gary uh, coming in and spending time here and uh, certainly fond of having Kel actually come on the air with this as well. Getting those perspectives is always uh, it's always good uh, to remind us that you know the rest of the world doesn't necessarily think what the mainstream media keeps telling us that they do. Da, 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 da. Anyway, let's continue with the show. As I was talking right before uh, uh, Dr. Hill joined us, uh, we were talking about uh, Alexandria Acaso Cortez. Uh, heading out to the wild, wild west and uh, doing some fundraising in Los Angeles in an effort to actually try to help promote socialism across the country and then primarily socialism within the Democratic Party. The idea is that somehow she can teach other Democrats across the country how to be successful against those corporate 
Democrats. And it continues to surprise me. I mean, Ocasio-Cortez is a young lady who at one point in her life was an entrepreneur who lectured uh, other would-be entrepreneurs on entrepreneurism, who complained about the government overtaxing small companies and startups and you know, kind of the opposite of the tact that she has now. And some people will say, well, she changed because she learned from the experience. I, I don't think so. I think she changed as a matter of political expediency. And we've seen this kind of thing before. You know, and, and like I, I still honestly believe, for uh, for better or for worse, I really believe that Donald J. Trump ran as a Republican, not because he is a die-in-the-wool conservative, but because it was a matter of political expediency. He knew he was far more likely to win given the tides sweeping the nation at the time. All you had to do was look at the previous elections and Watch how many states, especially states that had been predominantly Democrat, were moving to a purple state, and several purple states were becoming true red. And there was just this movement that he had his finger on the pulse on, and I think he ran as a Republican because he had a chance of winning the whole shebang coming out of the Republican primary. I know a lot of Trump supporters would give me grief for saying that, and when some of them hear this, I'm sure they will anyway. I'm bound to catch some. But I point out once again that uh, he had been a Democrat most of his life. Uh, He had a lot of great relationships with Democratic uh, politicians and with union leaders, a lot of that out of – Necessity, given the line of work that he was doing. I mean, real estate development in New York is not exactly something uh, you can count on a lot of Republican friends to help you uh, get things done. So maybe out of business, but as some of the things you said early on in the campaign, where they hinted uh, to the fact that he lends more towards a uh, leftist mentality on the social uh, side of things. And perhaps still a bit more conservative when it came to financial and economic things, but uh, a little more left-leaning when it came to the social issues. I think what we have seen as time went by, and of course you guys are welcome to to disagree if you like. That's, again, part of the great part of, about being an American or being in America or listening into an American program if you happen to be like Gary. Uh, is the fact that we can disagree with one another, and guess what? At the end of the day, we can agree to disagree and uh, still be friends. I, it's it's a fantastic phenomenon when it's allowed to happen. It, it, we see it a lot less. We become so divided. But I think that what has happened with Donald Trump is he has governed more conservatively than I had expected. Uh, Early on, certainly. But uh, as time moved on, I think he has grown to resent how he has been treated by top membership of the Democratic Party and by the mainstream media to the point that uh, he's kind of changed and become more and more conservative-minded, even on the social issues, because he realizes that if they're going to treat me like this, and again, still motivated by his own ego, 
So not necessarily the best of motivators here, uh, but you can debate philosophically all you want to. Is it better to do the wrong thing for the right reason or to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Hmm. I think if you're doing the right thing, that that's probably better. But, you know, I'm not the philosopher. <laughs> so uh, as, as it comes down to, I think that what we are continuing to see is the Democratic Party itself has got some issues. Uh, unfortunately for them, there was a poll recently conducted um, – Actually, I had it in front of me uh, just a second ago, and now I can't seem to find it. Let me see if I can pull it up again. Da, 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 da. I love doing stuff on live radio and not being ready to go. Da, da, da. That's why you guys like listening. It's entertaining when I have to make stuff up on the fly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay I've got it now. If I can get the, the tattoo cooperate and get me down to the right section. Okay. Uh, a poll recently uh, showed – that 76% of the people that responded said that they absolutely would not vote for a socialist political candidate, and only 24% of those polls said that they would. Now, this poll was conducted back on July 24th uh, before the craze that has become Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really became a media darling and started spreading across the country, um, but it was conducted by The Hill and Harris X. So these are a couple of organizations that when they do polling normally get a lot of Democratic voters uh, to participate. Uh, they, they, it's not like they're going to pull back. So the poll is directed towards Democratic voters or people likely to vote Democratic in this how it was placed. I don't have the actual numbers in front of me of how large the sample was. That's not listed here. But um, – Unless this was a sample size of less than 100, it's still pretty decisive with a 76% saying they absolutely would not. And these are Democratic voters or would-be Democratic voters. Yet we continue to see Democrats, especially top-name Democrats, those who may actually be uh, of notoriety and uh, concern when it comes time for the next presidential election… That have really bought into socialized ideas. Uh, one of the things I'll be talking about here in just a minute is this uh, idea about uh, this Medicare for Everyone business that Bernie Sanders has been just all about for a while now, and other notable Democrats have kind of joined in on that chorus. But the Democratic Party, at least certain members of it, pretty much embrace socialism. I mean everything from the free health care and the free college and the free money for everyone at called universal basic income, by the way, mostly so that it sounds a little less socialist. They're on board with this. You have Bernie Sanders in Vermont, an independent who got aced out of the Democratic presidential nomination back in 2016. Because of shenanigans perpetrated by the former Secretary of State and her minions operating the DNC at the time. Otherwise, it would have been a much closer race, and I actually think, based on the excitement that was surrounding him, that I think Bernie would have beat Hillary in a straight-up fair fight if the election had not had the creation of the superdelegates. 
and the superdelegates were selected primarily because they were known to be Clinton uh, surrogates in many cases. I think Bernie probably would have ended up a very close race, I still think, to the very end, but I think he would have won. But the Ocasio-Cortez bit is creating issues and creating a deeper divide because you're seeing this level of excitement. She's being held up as a media darling, and even now she's kind of weathered the storm of some of this when the information has come out, like the discrepancy in where she actually grew up. The discrepancy in how she was phrasing it so that everybody thought she was still from the neighborhood. Further discrepancies about her education. And then obviously she didn't want it to get out that she had been an entrepreneur because, well, you know, to have complained about small businesses and startup businesses being taxed. Well, that's kind of the opposite of even what mainstream corporate Democrats once said publicly. So if if the Democrats had actually taken uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez seriously from the beginning, they probably could have squashed her in the primary. But unfortunately, you have a 10-term expected to be the heir apparent to the leadership of the Democrats in the House when Nancy Mimi Pelosi decided to step down. Uh, there was just no way he was going to lose. It wasn't going to happen, but they completely underestimated, even now underestimated, refused to acknowledge, maybe might be a better phrase, what Bernie Sanders tapped into, and that is among young people – among the millennials who are or have been in support of the Democratic Party, they're constantly being indoctrinated on these college campuses, and they're being told that socialism is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And a lot of them feel like the Democrats simply aren't going far enough. They're not going far enough to the left. They're not doing enough to make the revolution occur. So they get excited about somebody like Ocasio-Cortez, and they want to get excited about other candidates, but they still don't make up enough of the voting block, strangely enough, for the Democratic Party to carry the day. Even though this upcoming election cycle, for the first time ever, millennials will be the largest individual voting block, period. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So we're hoping the millennials will get over their infatuation with uh, socialism. We'll see things like Venezuela for what it is. We'll stop buying in to this notion and idea that somehow the only reason socialism hasn't worked is just because the right people haven't done it yet. Or the newest argument, well, the only reason socialism hasn't worked is because uh, America keeps interfering and doesn't allow it to work. I've been hearing that more and more here recently. Yes, we've interjected our will and created failures 
for socialist nations so that we can continue to say, look, socialism never works. Look, socialism doesn't work because of human nature. You start going around and telling people that uh, they don't have to do anything, and then they won't. There are obviously going to be exceptions, okay? I, obviously, there's going to be, and the, you know, the whole socialism thing, the whole collectivism thing, it starts out not saying, well, you don't have to do anything. So you, you need to do what you can. You'll do what you can. They'll do what they can. We'll share the uh, the burdens and we'll share the rewards. Only inevitably, people start to feel like they're getting gypped. Inevitably, some people who Obviously, someone has to be in charge, starts taking advantage of being in charge. You're living on the freaking animal farm. Everything starts out before the farmer's overthrown is all animals are equal. Then after the farmer's been gone a little while, some animals are more equal than others. And again, it's allegory, boys and girls, and it is an accurate depiction of human nature. You can start out. With the greatest of intentions, you can have a medium-sized group with the right leader, and it can work fine for a while, but you still cannot control what that next leader is going to do or the one after that. Eventually, human nature is going to slide into its darkest, seediest place. Corruption is a real thing, and temptation exists in this world, and even the best of people can fall victim to temptation if… They're in a system that allows for it, just like what we have allowed to occur in Washington, D.C. The swamp is the swamp now because we let it be. We were given a republic. We were given a constitutionally federated republic in which the idea was to come, serve, go back home because your life wasn't there. It was somewhere else, but we ended up with career politicians, and now we have people like… Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, going to Southern California to begin fundraising to try and help push this whole new love of socialism throughout the Democratic Party. And this, this leads to bad things. So we've got another conversation going on in the chat room, uh, obviously a discussion. Uh, well, the one thing I can say is when New Orleans joins us, it always gets lively. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I love the fact that the uh, chief was willing to us, uh, Mr. Host, uh, you are fear-mongering. I respect you, but you are simply repeating talking points. You are not being analytical. Uh, okay, well, how so? I, I don't have talking points in front of me um, telling you – Things I've come to know from my experiences, typically. Uh, are are we uh, on the discussion of socialism in particular that you're uh, – and what part was I talking about fear mongering? talking about a potential split of the Democratic Party because um, there are folks that want to be more socialist uh, than others. Anyway, um, I appreciate appreciate the fact that you said you respect me, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I again, I, I'm not going down talking points. I'm just simply addressing the situation. And you know, again, 
we disagree, guess what? <laughs> Welcome to America, baby. <laughs> Welcome to America. Okay. Okay. He says there are no clear dividing lines between a socialist economy and a capitalist economic system. Mm. Well, I don't know that I would agree with that, uh, given the very fact that a capitalist economic system is typically based on a free market. Now, we don't have a true free market uh, economy at the moment, but it's about as close as you're going to find on the planet. Uh, a socialist uh, economic system is usually based on state ownership of uh, goods or services or companies that operate. I think that's a pretty clear dividing line. Uh, as far as anything else is concerned, yeah, the socialist economies tend to fail over time because it is it requires a great deal of spending in order to maintain and keep afloat. And when we move to a uh, a system that requires spending more than what's being generated, which unfortunately most collectivist economy ideologies always tend to fall to because inevitably government of the state is typically not particularly efficient, particularly not particularly efficient. Yeah, that, way to be redundant, Tim. Uh, <laughs> but uh, of course he says that uh, – some private enterprises act as agents of the government. Um, actually, I tend to think that very rarely does the government in a socialist economy consider those enterprises to be private. Uh, even if you look at uh, China's hybridized version, uh, they made it very clear when necessary that it, it's still the state calling the shots. Uh, there's not a whole lot of true – private industry operating in those systems. And again, the, the whole collectivist idea eventually comes to a crashing end because without um, market freedoms, uh, profitability is no longer a concern. Power companies, telecommunications, and again, utilities have always kind of fallen into a different uh, – mindset, but uh, I still think that uh, power companies, telecommunications, uh, cable, uh, all tend to be more efficient and more cost-effective when they're forced to compete in areas as well. But you don't often see that required even in the United States simply because sometimes it's more efficient to provide utility services without competition. At least that was always the argument. Um yeah, but uh, again, it's something that uh, not a, a debate I was prepared to have at the moment, but uh, you know, it's it's a reasonable discussion, and uh, you're making reasonable points. And there are always exceptions. Like we said, here in the United States, we don't have a true free market economy. If we did, things would be very different. Uh, still, capitalism uh, in practice around the world, in the history of the world, is still the singest single greatest wealth creator that has ever existed. And it's a big part of the reason why people in the United States 
get to enjoy a higher standard of living than more than 80% of the world. It's not because we've taken advantage of the world. It's not because we're colonialist. It's not because we're just mean old evil Americans. It's because uh, capitalism allows us that opportunity uh, to be profitable, and so we tend to be. All right, I'm moving on to the next topic, and I'm sure I've just got more talking points coming uh, <laughs> because that's what I do. Uh, we finally got a price tag this past week attached to the Medicare for All idea. Now, like I mentioned, Bernie Sanders has been pushing this for a while, and he wasn't particularly happy about the price tag that was thrown out there. And even though the, the fact exists that uh, he did not – and his office has not done any kind of cost analysis on the program themselves, they did find a mistake that was made. Uh, by the organization that really did the really blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you understand me when I start talking in tongues. <laughs> Bernie was unhappy with the organization that uh, established this particular price tag. They actually did make a correction. His office did find a mistake, and it changed it a little. But that price tag came out to being 32.6 billion with a b dollars over the course of a decade so literally speaking if we were to make this change which would uh, be far closer to that single payer system than where obamacare took us it would require us doing more than the pay attention more than doubling both the corporate tax rate in the United States and the individual income tax rate if we were going to cover the additional expense of doing that. Now, that is a huge price tag, and some people will argue that that would still be worth it until people who previously haven't been paying taxes suddenly would have to. Until people who just recently got a job suddenly no longer could keep their job because the corporate tax rate went up to the, the point that they had to streamline again in order to maintain prices of their products and services at a point where people could still afford to buy them. Because of what happens eventually, no matter what your service or product is, there's still only so much you can charge for it. There's a certain point where people, even if they have the means, are going to say, no, that's too much. And then your Goods and services go unused, carried inventories, uh, profitability goes down. There's no reason to do business if you can't make a profit. But the argument still stands. Is it is it good idea to provide medical coverage? And I, I don't like the idea of socialized medicine for several reasons, but it has nothing to do with the fact that I think people should not have health care. That's always the fallback position of a lot of people. You just want people to die in the streets. No, no, I, I don't. In fact, there have been several times where I wish I could have afforded to get medical attention uh, that I simply had to <laughs> limp my way through because I couldn't afford to do it. It's one of those situations where 
you have to really look at the overall price. What's the total price paid? And I kind of addressed that in an article that I wrote that was uh, picked up again by Trinity County News and beyond. Uh, my title actually got changed by the editor. And the new title is, Does the $32.6 billion Medicare for All Plan Mean We Will Actually Have Health Care? Uh, it wasn't my original title. Uh, I, basically, mine was a little more blunt and to the point. It was just $32.6 billion over a decade for what? I find that the questions uh, often brings more interest. But anyway, if you will indulge me, I'll read the article as edited. Sometimes the editor takes liberties and changes a few things here and there, which is fine. And usually it does make it for a little bit better read. Sometimes when I'm alone with my thought, I think I'm clear, and then I go back and reread it myself, and it's like, crap, I need an editor. Uh, anyway, uh, with your permission, I'll begin. The political debate over universal health care is not a new argument. In fact, in just recent history alone, we've had examples of Hillary Care, which is a program that was uh, under the guidance of Hillary Rodham Clinton while she was the first lady, and uh, it never really came close to being implemented. Uh, also, in roughly the same time frame, uh, thereabouts, not exactly, uh, there was Romney Care. Uh, a plan that was signed into law in the state of Massachusetts while Mitt Romney was the governor. Uh, it cost the state millions of taxpayer dollars, and it's still being debated today whether or not it actually made any improvements to health care outcomes. Uh, obviously, a lot of folks feel very strongly that it did. Now, others looking at raw data make a pretty strong case that uh, the outcomes really weren't affected significantly, so the debate wages on. Most recently, we had Obamacare, also known in some circles as uh, the Unaffordable Health Care Act, and uh, it actually required Democrats to change the rules of Congress just a bit in order to force this admitted stepping stone to a single-payer system upon the American people. Now, the Affordable Health Care Act was written in a way that made it unsustainable. Many, like myself, believe that this was done intentionally to lead to the American people to demand a fix so that the federal government could swoop in and save the day with a full... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at Chumba Casino. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Full-fledged socialized medicine, or at least another step closer to it, at the very least. But regardless of whether you believe it intentional or not, due to the continuous rising of premiums for less than adequate coverage and the IRS uh, – I lost my place here – and the IRS keeping – what would have been otherwise income tax refunds to help cover the cost of marketplace policies, 
Obamacare was – I'm sorry, Obamacare as it was written and implemented was doomed to fail, as many conservatives warned. The newest call by far-left politicians uh, to push uh, is being championed by uh, democratic socialists, uh, people like Bernie Sanders, uh, in what he calls Medicare for All. It was first pushed by the Vermont Socialist during his bid to become the Democratic presidential nominee. He plans to extend the current Medicare program, which already has some uh, serious financial issues, to cover everyone. There are a few problems with that plan, chief among them uh, and most easily provable to even the most stubborn advocate for it would be the cost. Now, uh, at uh, George Mason, uh, they have a a group over there, a think tank. It's libertarian-leaning, known as uh, the Mercatus Center. This libertarian-leaning policy center uh, says that it would cost the U.S. government $32.6 trillion over the course of the next 10 years to make Medicare for all to cover the new burden to the American taxpayers. Of extending Medicare benefits to the entire population would require a massive tax increase. This conclusion also, just FYI, aligns with a similar analysis that was performed by the Urban Institute. And while many so-called progressive politicians from both sides of the aisle believe that more government is always the answer no matter what the question <laughs> would have no problems with raising our taxes. In fact, most of them also seem to believe that all of the money is theirs, and we're lucky they let us keep any of it. So you'll forgive me if I don't think that they are the best judges of what is an appropriate tax rate. However, according to the study, the government could double all corporate and individual income taxes, and it would still lack the required revenue to fund the program. Now Sanders, who has long advocated for universal health care systems, impugned the study's credibility, citing the funding uh, that uh, the uh, Mercatus uh, Center receives come – well, some of the funding comes from the Koch brothers. He said, quote, if every major – country on earth can guarantee health care to all and achieve better health outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do, it is absurd for anyone to suggest that the United States cannot do the same. He continued saying this grossly misleading and biased report is the Koch brothers' response to the growing support in our country for a Medicare for All program. Now, it is important to note that Sanders said this even though his office has not performed a cost analysis of their own on the plan that he has championed. Uh, championed. And his criticism of the study over the Koch brothers doesn't explain the findings of the Urban Institute. I would also point out a misleading thing in his statement. Sanders said that these other nations achieve better health outcomes than we do. I would love to know what standard Senator Sanders is using to make that statement. 
when it comes to quality of service or wait times to be seen, the current system here in the states far exceeds the norms in the nations that have socialized their national health care. The innovations in care and technology are at the cutting edge here, which also improves outcomes. So whatever standard the senator is using, all you must do is ponder the question of why those who can afford to travel to the United States from the UK and from Canada, just as a couple of examples, why would they come here for care if they could just stay home, have it provided for them, and the outcome would literally be better there. Why spend so much more on an outcome that's not as good? Obviously, there's something to play there. I would also like to point out, although I didn't include it in the article, that uh, most of these countries are also paying a lot more in the tax burden. So when it comes to talking about spending per capita, the numbers are kind of manipulated and it gets lost in the minutia that the reason they're able to say that is because they draw a much larger tax base and part of it's spent in multiple other locations and they kind of get to dilute it so it's an accounting trick <coughs> you have this accounting trick that's why they're spending less per capita in actuality if you looked at the true dollars spent not so much but anyway, what's more disconcerting right now uh, for the United States is that it appears that the idea of Medicare for All is becoming something of a litmus test for 2020 presidential hopefuls for the Democratic Party. People like Cory Booker and uh, Kamala Harris and a few other notable Democrats have expressed their support for the plan despite none of them having a good idea of how to pay for this without some vague comments about the wealthy paying their fair share. I, I do find it strange how the party that claims to be for the people is always quick to grow the government and increase the power of government in everyone's life. But why is it so important, as it has been for decades now, in the minds of some of the governments … To take full control of our health care. Now, they'll tell you that it's because of the lack of access to care for the poor and the expense of it, but is that really it? So the reason why someone like myself questions the intentions of those politicians, the ones who push for the socialized medicine, is because we've seen what happens in countries that nationalize their health care. We've seen the long waits for needed care uh, that in some cases are never de uh, delivered because those in need die before they can be treated. And before anybody objects to that, yes, it does happen. It may be rare, but it happens. We've seen the failures of our own VA system, which is not that dissimilar to the UK system. We have seen the availability of some treatments limited or restricted because of cost or lack of innovation in those nations. We've seen medical decisions taken out of the hands of doctors, nurses, and the patients themselves and placed firmly in the hands of bureaucrats whose job it is to do cost analysis with little to no concern for the human being on the other side of the analysis. 
Now, I know that the utopian dream has its appeal when you don't think too long about the details. But socializing medicine is a wrong move for America. We need to be focused on finding ways of reducing the cost of providing health care without slowing innovation and without turning our health care workers into government employees. We need to promote growth in our economy to the point where all of our citizens can better afford their own care. We should never have an American Charlie Gard. Now, for those of you who've already forgotten, Charlie Gard was the infant boy from London born with mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. The British healthcare system threw in the towel and decided that there was nothing left to do but watch the baby die. Now, the story gained international attention when his parents tried to remove Charlie from the country to seek experimental treatments paid for by private donations from around the world. Both Italy and the United States even tried to bestow citizenship on young Charlie in an effort to get him out of the British system, but to no avail. Talked a lot about Charlie Gard on the show and why he is the poster child of socialized medicine. But in the end, Charlie Gard most likely would have died regardless. But what harm would there have been to try to save the child? What harm would have come in advancing the medical science that would have come from the data gathered during the treatment, getting us closer to a cure, getting us one step closer to a baby being born a decade from now with mitochondrial DNA depletion and it not be a death sentence? What harm would it have been? The harm, my friend, was in challenging the state and its power over you and your children. The harm was in thinking that you as a parent would have more say over your child than the government, as Christopher Gard and Constance Yates found out the hard way while the whole world watched. America is based on individual liberty for all. Freedom cannot thrive when the government has that much power over its citizens. Socializing anything is contrary to the very spirit of this nation, and I know that I will be criticized for the examples that I used here as being worst-case scenarios, but if it can happen once, then it will happen again. Don't let it be here. Medicaid for all is a socialist idea that if implemented will bankrupt our nation, so Bernie, Corey… Kamala, stop trying to turn America into Venezuela while making empty promises of free stuff. Stop trying to buy votes from people who don't understand how economies work. Nothing is ever free, and there are far worse prices to pay than just money. So basically, that's it. Uh, I see Kel is late to the party. Hello, Kel. It's about time you got here. Of course, I figured you would uh, get here about the time I mentioned Charlie Gard. (laughs) (laughs) Missed a great interview in the first hour, by the way, Kel, so you'll have to go back and check it out in archives. And Kel says that… 
Charlie might have been saved. And had had the case been uh, brought to international attention earlier, yeah, it's true. I mean, both the uh, U.S. doctor that took a look at him that was willing to try to tr- uh, the experimental treatment he had uh, said that it was it was very close, but he would have been actually much more hopeful had he been able to see Charlie and treat him sooner. He never got the chance. The British system wasn't allowed. And speaking of the British system, real quick, non-Charlie Guard related, I have not mentioned yet. I always do, Jim. <laughs> okay, thank you, Cal. Uh, speaking of the British system, uh, and I hadn't mentioned yet on the show, uh, Tommy Robinson is—he's uh, won his appeal. So uh, Tommy Robinson is a free man now. Uh, plus, and somehow seeing Cal reminded me of that. I, we've had some Tommy Robinson conversations, Cal and I. So I guess that's part of what triggered that. So uh, congratulations there. Good to see that justice still prevails even in the British court system. Even if it takes a little bit. All right, let me take a break right here. Da, 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 da. Okay, I've only got a few minutes left, so I need to get to this last bit if I'm going to get there at all. Um, basically, last thing that I wanted to, to discuss was this um, Portland, Oregon business. It's not a not a pretty thing. Let me pull up uh, an article I wrote about that. We'll start uh, there. Of course, I meant to have this already done, so here I am again. So, again, talk amongst yourselves, everyone, <laughs> as I do what I do. I think we need to move past. If we're going to continue as a free nation, we need to move past some of our misconceptions, and we need to stop holding each other to a different set of standards. We need to hold each other to the same set of standards. I think that's part of where we continue to have issues uh, with most conversations. But uh, – Here's my article, um, and if you will, again, permit me, since it's my show, I'll get away with it. <laughs> so I just hope you'll hang around long enough to hear it. Uh, this one is, of course, titled, If You Work for ICE, Don't Bother Calling 911. Uh, imagine that you work in an office building. Probably not hard for some of you. Some of you probably actually do work in an office building. Now, imagine that outside of that office building, there's a large very angry crowd that has gathered protesting what they believe to be the policy of the president. Still imagining now, you work for a government agency that is at the heart of the policy in question. Not a field agent, mind you, but you work for the agency. And that large, very angry crowd has some folks in it that are menacing and appear to be violent. At this point, you call 911 emergency services because all you want to do is go home at the end of your workday. You wait for the police, but no one shows up. Somebody calls again. Still, no one to serve and protect. What would you do? 
If you worked for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office in Portland, Oregon, you have already had to answer that question. Not as a hypothetical, because it happened during the sometimes violent week-long demonstrations in front of their offices, uh, better known uh, through the media as Occupy ICE. Employees were literally trapped by the so-called Occupy ICE protests, which consisted of many pro-illegal alien folks with a little Antifa sprinkled in for good measure. At least two documented 911 calls were placed by the ICE employees, but the police either refused or were not allowed to respond. Portland, Oregon Mayor Ted Wheeler is at the heart of the issue. The mayor has put in place a policy that forbids Portland law enforcement agencies from assisting any ICE employees while they are at or away from work. Mayor Wheeler is a strong is a strongly committed to the left's resistance of all things Donald Trump. And he's so committed to it that he is perfectly willing to let citizens of his city who happen to be federal employees defend for themselves against misguided mobs. Another one of those great examples of virtue signaling in the absence of any real virtue. The National Immigration and Customs Enforcement Council, a union that represents ICE employees, has written a cease and desist letter to Mayor Wheeler asking him to ensure the the police enforce the laws equally and protect innocent people. The letter says, quote, your current policy forbidden, forbidding Portland law enforcement agencies from assisting employees of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency who request law enforcement assistance while at or away from work is a violation of the United States Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. However, at this point, there is little indication that the mayor is planning on making any changes to his policy. I'm afraid that it will take litigation to remedy any of this, and I'm further afraid that more people will be injured or worse before that particular bit of issue is concluded. Now, before I go any further, I do want to make it clear that I'm not being critical of law enforcement in this case. The men and women in blue, no matter what city or town they work in, they do a very hard job in what is very often tough circumstances. It's the policy of the mayor that makes it impossible for the police of Portland to do their job in this case. There may very well be some officers, maybe even several officers, that believe as the mayor does. But I doubt seriously that there are any law enforcement personnel out there who want to see lawlessness on their streets. The failing here is Mayor Wheeler's need to stick it to Trump. For those of you who are angry at President Trump for his border policy, I would like to point out once again that the separation of children from adults being detained for illegally crossing our border is not actually his policy, and it never was. It was a ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals during the Obama administration that made it necessary. Now, Obama did the exact same thing after that ruling and struggled to execute it. 
And on this particular occasion, and write it down because you won't hear this from me very often, this isn't meant to be a knock on Obama either because government, regardless of who's in charge, often has difficulty working well on the fly. It's just what we see. Government's bulky and bureaucratic and not very agile and not very efficient, period. So you put them in a situation where they have to make changes and adjustments on the fly. It normally takes them a while to get their footing. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Now, if you're angry about Trump's policy on the border for any other reason, then you're just mad that he's attempting to enforce the law, and that's really not worthy of a rebuttal. For those of you who are caught up in the abolish ICE hysteria… I wonder how many of you know what it is that ICE really does on a day-to-day basis. I tend to think that many of you who fall under that particular category may be simply following others and have no real idea about this particular federal agency and what it does. In that case, I would simply ask that you learn more about ICE from independent sources, and then if you still feel the same way, I'd love to know why. Because unless you're a terrorist or an illegal alien, you really have no need to fear ICE. ICE works your communities safer. That's what they do. And for those of you who are for the children, I'd like to point out that many of the children being brought across our border as a legal prop are not with their parents. Or family members of any kind, for that matter, when they are detained. And I'm not just talking about unaccompanied minors here. At this very moment, this very moment that I'm speaking to you, whether you're listening live or listening in the archives somewhere, there is currently a thriving human trafficking business in Central and South America that is built on the premise of using children to help provide legal cover… For anyone caught illegally entering our country, these children are subjected to harsh conditions, dangerous travel, and often end up working on ranches and farms in slave-like conditions or in the sex trade if they cross unimpeded or sometimes even if they are detained but are then released to family members already in the States. Here I would ask, shouldn't we have policies and laws that are are designed to discourage and tries to end this horrific practice? I mean if you really are for the children, wouldn't that be what's best for them? But in this particular case, the real problem in this particular news story about Portland's ICE office being under siege… Isn't the police who didn't answer the call, and it isn't the mob or the violence that was carried out by members of Antifa that were in that mob, although those are pretty big problems. The real problem in this instance is that the mayor of Portland encouraged lawlessness in the city he has sworn to serve. Wheeler's policies allowed for innocent people to be endangered simply because he doesn't like who they are working for, the federal government, and in Wheeler's mind, Donald Trump. 
people who are literally working to enforce U.S. laws were allowed to be targeted by domestic terrorists – that would be Antifa – in the name of others who are by definition criminals, illegal aliens. That's the real problem here. I get worked up, angry, very angry when I see a story like that because I, it's okay to feel differently about how the laws are established. And there is so much wiggle room in the Tenth Amendment involving a nullification. I get all of that. But when it comes down to it, and I've when I've had uh, Mike Meharry on the show before, we have had disagreed on a few things. Now, he tends to think that the Tenth Amendment covers absolutely everything, that the states have the power to nullify all U.S. federal laws regardless. And I tend to think that as part of the contract, anything that is specifically laid out as a power that is enumerated for the federal government – must be respected and honored and should not and cannot be nullified by the states. I, I firmly believe that. Uh, he's an expert, though. He was at the Tenth Amendment Center. He's, well, or he was. I don't think he's still there anymore, but still a great guest. The bottom line here still comes from the simple fact that the police should be there to provide protection for everyone involved. The rights of Antifa do not consist the right to get violent. The rights of the protesters do not outweigh the rights of the citizens working in the ICE office for them or their ability to go home safely. Everyone has their individual rights, and all of their rights must be protected. That's part of the glorious joy of a republic. And when that fails, elected officials who are intentionally participating in an effort to prevent that from occurring – are not only in violation of their oath of office, but they are violating the most basic of human decency, and that is respecting your fellow man even when you disagree with them. I'm going to have to leave it at that. I am out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being here. Quick shout-out one more time to everybody in the chat room. Gary Comforter, Kel, the Infidel Fox, Mary, uh, New Orleans Wake Up. Thanks for stopping in again. And uh, Chief from Simple Facts of Life, you guys are great. Love you. And if you're listening uh, with any of the other devices, thank you as well. Uh, KYAH, 540 AM Utah. Come back again tomorrow morning. You'll catch me then as well. That's it for now. I'm out. A little more Matt Fitzgibbon, shall we? Uh, since it's so rainy and dreary, how about the rain is coming? Good night. God bless. Check out PatriotMusic.com when you get a chance. Let them know I sent you. And I'm out. like a thousand years since we had real fears but the old ones won't forget these broken levee walls had a few close calls but they haven't fallen yet and you know the rain Sun beats down and it fakes the ground and you
Bring with it promise of change When you 